Welcome to The World Awaits. Travel tales to inspire your wanderlust. I'm Kirsty Bedford, journalist, editor and travel writer. And I'm Belinda Jackson, author, travel journalist and columnist. And we're your weekly co-hosts. Welcome back to our first official podcast for 2024 following our fantastic summer series. We hope you enjoyed them and if not, go back and take a listen. We covered some of our best interviews as well as the best, most bizarre travel moments from some of our guests. That vomiting comedian from Brent Hill from Tourism Fiji talked that he talked about. It was absolutely hilarious. Oh, no. My gosh. I laugh every time I hear that. And I listen to it multiple times. Still laughing. <laughs> um, and we also take you to Spain and Italy. I mean, who doesn't want to go back to Spain and Italy? And of course, last week we talked about two of Victoria's favourite holiday playgrounds. Mornington Peninsula and Phillip Island, where we've both holidayed for years, but I think Phillip Island wins for Nature Bell. Uh, yeah, okay, the, but the peninsula has incredible nature and definitely wins for food and wine, but we'll let you decide. So jump back to the previous episode if you missed it and let us know which one did it better. So you can drop us a little line at hello at theworldawaits.au. And as we record this, I'm just back from the peninsula and so no bias, no bias. But I'm packing up uh, for another great part of Victoria up in the high country. As you may know from listening to us, we both love a good hike. Yes, and I did loads of hiking over the break. So in last week's episode, I did talk about some of the best places to hike on Phillip Island. Phillip Island, one of the <laughs> best places to holiday. But I also took my teens back to Auckland too to see my mum. And we went to Waiheke Island, which is a 45-minute ferry ride from the city and hiked there. And it's a real playground for the rich and famous over there. I actually didn't realise how much so. But anyway, you can read more about that when my story comes out in vacations and travel next month. But back to the hike, there are loads of hikes you can do on the island and it's very, very steep, which means two things. Great workout and, of course, amazing views in those houses, those mansions carved into the cliff. And Waiheke would also win when it comes to wineries because there's 30 of them on that one island. Oh my God, 30 on that tiny little island. So... You get a thigh workout. You get to perv in people's fabulous houses and drink wine. <laughs> Especially that Otago Pinot Noir. So now what have we got coming up this week, Kirsty? We are revealing the world's most powerful passports, and it is a thing. It's so a thing. the Henley Passport Index is an annual list based on data from the International Air Transport Association, which shows which are the most powerful passports to hold and it matters because how powerful your passport is means you have more visa-free travel. Yeah, so the index includes 199 different passports and 227 different travel destinations, and it's updated monthly. So this year, there was an unprecedented tie for the top passports, which are from France, Germany, Italy, Japan, Singapore, and Spain. And holders of those passports can visit 194 destinations without requiring a visa around the globe. And in second place were South Korea, Finland and Sweden, who can visit 193 destinations visa-free. Australia rated sixth with 189 visa-free destinations, along with New Zealand, Poland and the Czech Republic. And the worst passports to hold were Pakistan, Iraq, Syria and Afghanistan, which means if you held one of those passports, there are only 28 countries you can visit without getting a visa. So historically, Japan and Singapore have dominated the list. So this shows a trend of more accessibility around the world and things are improving. 
Uh, for many countries, the UAE was the biggest climber, adding 106 destinations since 2014. Oh. And Ukraine and China are also among the top five countries with the most improved rankings. Mm. But there is a big gap between the top passports being able to visit 194 countries visa-free and the bottom only with 28 visa-free countries. And we'll put the full list in the show notes. You're listening to The World Awaits. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating and review on your favourite podcast platform. This week, I'm chatting with Andrew Conway, who's been travelling and writing about it for 40 years. Even so, he only recently visited both poles for the first time, and he talks to me about what you're likely to see in both Antarctica and the Arctic, and what you can do to ensure you play your part in ensuring the protection of these fragile bucketless destinations. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you, Kirsty. A privilege. Pleasure. It's so fantastic to have you on um, The World Awaits. Um, let's start by just explain to our listeners a little bit about your background and how specifically you got into travel. I just did a very quick calculation before, uh, before we started, and I worked out I've been doing this job as a journalist and a travel writer for 44 years, which is <laughs> even I was shocked by uh, <laughs> how many years I've put into this. Look, I've worked on major newspapers, magazines, websites, actually on three continents. I, I trained in the United Kingdom uh, and, and did my journalism training there. Then I came to Australia and spent half my life in Australia working for some of the major newspapers and magazines here. And then I went to the United States um, and I did 12 years in the US, again, editing uh, uh, travel and lifestyle magazines and websites. So hence my slightly mixed uh, accent. Um, uh, I worked for the Australian, I worked for the Sun-Herald, and it was during my time at the Sun-Herald in the 1980s, uh, back at when the Australian travel industry was kind of in its infancy in 1984, the Paul Hogan throw a shrimp on the Barbie thing. And my editor came to me and I traveled extensively on my own. And he said, I'd like to beef up the travel section. I see a commercial opportunity here. Would you do it? And I said to him, whether he said, have a think about it. And I said, wait, you want to pay me? I just want to get this right. You want to pay me to travel <laughs> and, and write about it? I said, I don't need to think about it. I am saying yes right now. And it was a, a moment of fate that uh, put me on a trajectory that's uh, lasted for the rest of my life. And I would say a fortunate life, you know, having been able to travel uh, to many parts of the world and, and report back on it um, uh, at a time, too, when, when travel uh, was, was very much open. We didn't have global pandemics. I mean, there were obviously sporadic uh, wars from time to time, but um, generally a sort of what I consider a safer time and, and uh, you know, less troubled time. So I, I feel very, very fortunate in that. And the two poles, which the Arctic and the Antarctic, which we're going to talk about today, had largely eluded me. Um, you know, back in the day, going to the Arctic and to the Antarctic was a very time-consuming uh, a thing. Um, you had to commit a, a substantial amount of time. It was not done in any sort of kind of real comfort. It was done on Russian icebreakers. And I just did back in the day, wasn't able to commit the time to, to polar 
uh, exploration. And and as I've got older and and my life has changed and work is easing up a little bit, I, I now have more time to do it. And and of course, expedition travel, particularly in the polar regions, has exploded. In its, I, I would say it's probably one of the fastest, if not the fastest, growing sector of of the travel industry. I want to touch on that on that some more because particularly this expedition idea of expedition cruising, and a lot of people might not understand the differences between, uh, you know, the certain types of cruising. So can you talk a little bit about that and and uh, the expedition cruises that you went on, um, and what does it mean by um, and why? Does is that does that what does that mean when you're on an expedition cruise ship? I, I'm going to start this by actually taking the word cruise and cruising out of the conversation. An expedition voyage to the Arctic or the Antarctic is not a cruise. I really have to stress this. It's not a cruise from your traditional Mediterranean passenger perspective. This is all about small ship expedition uh, uh, um, travel. Um, You are on board a ship, so I guess per se you are cruising. Uh, You're on water for much of the time. Uh, Obviously, there are tremendous shore excursions to be had too. But the, 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 the ships, so I have been very privileged to have been to, to both the Arctic and the Arctic with, with, within the same year, just about. So last year, I traveled to the Antarctic. I did an extended trip. I thought if I'm going to go, this is a bucket list destination. I want to do the, 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 the most I can with, with this one trip. So I did a 23-day uh, expedition with an Australian company, uh, Aurora Expeditions, Australian owned and operated. It's been going for about 30 years and it was co-founded by Greg Mortimer, one of Australia's greatest mountaineers and adventurers and his wife, Margaret, back in 1991. Uh, so they've got tremendous experience in the field. They're one of the pioneers of expedition travel uh, and and Greg himself uh, has has tremendous experience, particularly in the Antarctic with his travels there, but also the Arctic. So I did a 23 day trip to uh, to to the Antarctic, uh, the Antarctic Peninsula, onto South Georgia, which was just in the sub Antarctic, which was just mind blowingly uh, special, and then onto the Falkland Islands, actually in the. 40th anniversary of the Falklands War, which I grew up with. So there were, there was some sort of full circle moment there. Uh, about a year later, I was very lucky to be invited back to go to the Arctic. And I, I kind of, I, I felt like I knew what the Antarctic was. I'd, I'd never been, but I'd seen so many David Attenborough documentaries. <laughs> and I sort of felt like I knew the Antarctic and I knew absolutely nothing about the Arctic. And I felt like I went to the Arctic as a bit of an open book. And I have to say that the Arctic is one of the most special places I've ever been to in my life. Um, I just can't, it's one of the, it it actually is a place that makes me quite emotional. um, Because on one hand, it's so beautiful in a really um, sort of barren, desolate, undiscovered kind of way. 
And yet at the same time, it's so fragile and so vulnerable. And, you know, we, climate change is sort of the, you know, the talk of the day as it should be. Well, I can tell you without any hesitation that I feel like I have stood at the very front line of climate change by going to the Arctic because we explored in the Arctic, that was a 15 day trip. And I'll explain, we went to the Norwegian Arctic. So we started out of Oslo to Longyearbyen, which was the port of entry. And then we did a 15 day circumnavigation of uh, Spitsbergen, the largest island in Svalbard. And because we were chasing weather, and this is why expedition travel is not a cruise, you have to expect the unexpected. Um, our entire itinerary got changed because of the weather and uh, sea ice. And we had to go in a reverse um, circumnavigation rather than a clockwise navigation. And it changed the entire nature of, of the expedition. Um, but we there's a caveat to the, the magnificence of the Arctic because it is disappearing before our very eyes. And I know we'll get into this a little later, but literally sea ice is, is, is melting. These vast ice caps are melting. They have waterfalls pouring off them. Um, the temperatures were the highest they've ever been while we were there. We were walking around in t-shirts and shorts. We were swimming in in water there off beaches. This should not be happening in the Arctic uh, at all. So, you know, there, there's, there's this sort of tremendous sense of education, this tremendous sense of conservation, this tremendous sense of sustainability that we need to put into Arctic and Antarctic polar travel. But then at the same time, are we sort of part of the problem of being there because we're sailing around, um, albeit with, you know, world-class, um, world-class environmental credentials and biofuels and, you know, this sort of concept of treading lightly, Aurora expeditions. And uh, I would like, you know, some of its competitors are, 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 are working incredibly hard to make sure that their footprint is as minimal as possible while still trying to educate people who have the money to go there to sort of become ambassadors, much like this, so that we can talk about it and bring the tales of the Arctic and the Antarctic back to us and sort of spread the word about the great things and, and about some of the more fragile things, yes. more vulnerable things that are going on there. Yes, and I was in Norway in uh, in October, and I, and I can, um, and we were walking on a, on a, to a glacier, and I I understand what you're talking about that on a diff, slightly different level, but um, because you know there were markers obviously of of this glacier and how how much it was shrinking, and while it was truly remarkable seeing it, it, it was quite devastating. Uh, and knowing that they were saying to us, take lots of photos because um poss possibly next time you're here, you you will never see it again. Um, so let let's talk about that. So what does the what do the cruise ships, what are they actually doing? And, and what can you do as a traveler to these? Because like you said, this is just a really bucket list, incredible destinations to visit. And and like you were saying, particularly for Arctic, for you, it was, and, and for someone so well-traveled to be saying that it, it was really one of the most incredible places you've ever been to. Um. So so what are some of the things, and, and can we really make any change? Oh, 
I'm a great believer in that we can always make change um, <clears throat> globally as the global village and also individually. I think it's twofold. I think the Aurora expeditions, and I can only speak to Aurora really because I traveled to both polar regions with the same company, but different ships. They have two small expedition ships in the fleet. One is named after Greg, the Greg Mortimer, and the other one is named after one of the greatest ocean uh, conservationists on the planet, Dr. Sylvia Earle. And I would encourage people, it, it, your listeners, if you do nothing else today, but Google Dr. Sylvia Earle. She is the David Attenborough of oceans. I don't think she's overly well known in Australia, but the work that she has put in, she's into her nineties now, the work that she has put into ocean conservation and continues to put in it, it is unbelievable. It's really second to none. So it's interesting that Aurora has sort of gone into partnership to some degree and named one of the ships after Sylvia Earle. And she's very much sort of, um, you know, a, a, a partner in, in the delivery of the experience from, from an education perspective. Um, so the, the Aurora and these other expedition companies are putting millions and millions of dollars into making sure that their environmental credentials are world class. So Aurora is a, it's a hundred percent carbon neutral. It's about to achieve B Corp certification, which is about creating a business that's, that's verified on its performance and accountability and transparencies on everything across the board from both within the company and without on, on sustainability uh, uh, side of things. The ships, the two ships have this Ulstein X-Bow, which uh, lowers fuel consumption and fewer emissions. It's got amazing sort of energy and water and waste management systems on board world-class expedition teams to provide the education side of things, this a comprehensive citizen science program, which we'll get to because that's what expeditioners, and I don't want to call them passengers, they're not passengers, they are expeditioners that go on these voyages. And they work with these women in, conversa uh, in conservation. So there's a tremendous amount of work going on in the background with Aurora and with all of these um, small expedition uh, ships that travel to these areas, but something like citizen science. So now citizen science, and I hate to say it, but the very word science, uh, I have failed every science exam and test in my life. <laughs> I am not, I do not have a science bone in my body or a, <laughs> uh, uh, in my brain. Um, this is very different. This is living, uh, what I term living science. This is about getting involved personally on board the ships and working with the naturalists and the expedition team on board who are experts in their different chosen fields and taking part in uh occasional you know they're 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 scheduled fairly sort of regularly through through the the voyage where you go out on deck or you go in a zodiac or you walk on shore and you take part in collecting and gathering uh data effectively from from the water from the air from the land um 
taking it back to the ship, analyzing the information in, in a very simple sort of basic way. And then with the help of the experts on board, sharing this data with from the natural world um, with, with professional scientists around the world. So the citizen science program on Aurora covers eight specific um, topics, uh, and I'll guide them through you very, very quickly. Um, that that pass that um, expeditioners can can join in, uh, and and it's incredibly enjoyable, and you learn so much, and then you bring the information back, and then it gets stored, and it gets analyzed, and it gets shared uh, around the world, and it's sort of creating this global database, I guess, that is ongoing. It's a living thing. And even though you play a very small part in it, there, there's definitely a sense of I'm actually doing something good here. Uh, and that can sound very esoteric, but just that sense of I'm here, I'm privileged to experience what I'm seeing, but I'm also trying to sort of tread lightly and give back and and sort of pay it forward, if you like. Um, and, and these science um, programs, so we're talking about whales. Um, every whale can be identified. So we, we spend time identifying whales, taking photographs, and, you know, we were seeing a, a vast number of, of whales in, not so much in the Antarctic, but but definitely in the in the Antarctic, we did microplastic surveys. A major problem. You think that the poles are pristine and clean and untouched, and they are not. The, the Arctic Ocean is connected to every other ocean on the planet, and unfortunately, the crap that human beings throw off ships and off our beaches and out of our waterways ends up in the Arctic and the Antarctic. So beach cleanups we did, um, seabird surveys. We did cloud observations, information that's then shared with NASA in the United States. We did phytoplankton. Uh, we did observing plants and animals. And Aurora's just about to launch a new one, a new uh, uh, an eighth um, uh, citizen science uh, project called IC. It's about mapping global pollution and maritime hazards, ships. I'm not talking about necessarily cruise ships, but they're part of the, the challenge. Ships are some of the, create some of the biggest hazards on the planet for marine, marine life, particularly whales. Um, so I, I can't stress tremendous amount of work going on in the background that I feel mitigates to some degree, the 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 challenge of of being there and you know leaving a footprint. Although you know the aim is to leave as minimal a footprint, and I can't tell you the biosecurity measures and you know the the the, the measures that are taken to protect the wildlife and the flora and the fauna and everything else are very, very strict. They're under very strict re regulations. So, so yeah, it's, it's a challenge on one hand, but a lot of work is being done. And without education, we can't save 
something if you don't know what it is. And again, I'm, I guess it's quite a lofty kind of ambition, but if you don't know something or haven't experienced something, it becomes much harder to try to protect it or preserve it or save it. So I think this concept of somehow carefully taking people to these really fragile places, vulnerable places that are really the last sort of frontiers, if you like, on the planet, um, does come with some, with a major effort to to try to protect and preserve it for future yes. generations. I think that's a really good point uh, because absolutely, of course, if you're not living any situation, it's very hard to be an advocate for it. And, um, and, and that really, really does explain sort of where the balance can come in of, um, and you know how why it is important for people to go, but do it in the do it in the right way. Um, what what were some of the most remarkable experiences that you had, just outside of citizen science, but just in those in those? I mean, seeing penguins, seeing the whales. What what were some of the most remarkable things that, um, that you know that that will stay with you from those trips? Let's talk Antarctic, um, which, as I say, I think people have a, a fairly good understanding that there is the peninsula, um, which is a very tiny part of, of the, the Antarctic continent, obviously. Um, uh, the, the monumental element of it, I had misunderstood just how big, in every sense of the word, and Antarctica is, both on a, on a, on a geographic, geological scale you know we're talking in vast mountains ranges and uh, it, icebergs the, the the size i i can't of container ships bigger three times the size of container ships and ice caps and and then the sheer scale of the wildlife where you know you'd sort of get in the zodiac every day twice a day and be taken off the ship and be deposited on a beach and you sort of say to the the one of the expedition team well where are we going and they'd say well just sort of go you know i mean obviously they escorted us for safety reasons but but then suddenly you're on a beach and you are literally surrounded by hundreds thousands tens of thousands of of emperor and, and king penguins and a whole variety of other penguins that that uh, there's a whole family of penguins there, fur seals, elephant seals, you know, the the bird life. Um, th th these are very dynamic environments. They're very harsh environments. They, you think that nothing could kind of exist there, and they're, you know, they're very harsh to 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 human, um, to people, but to wildlife that have adapted to living there. Going on to South Georgia, you know, this sort of Garden of Eden where we we sailed up towards it and the water suddenly became alive with penguins like porpoising out of the waters and the sky is just filling with bird life. And I think I saw a, a documentary with David Attenborough, sales to David Attenborough, saying that South Georgia is really in his mind the most special place on the on the planet and not to go to go to Antarctica and not to do South Georgia, I think you would people would be doing themselves a disservice, although there's long distances between them. And then, Kirsty, the Arctic. Um, 
I mentioned earlier that we had to change the whole route of 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 our of our expedition because of sea ice that was 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 too heavy to the north of us. So we went anti-clockwise around Spitsbergen. That took us on a whole different trajectory. We had ten polar bear sightings, two of which included cubs and kills. We saw Arctic foxes and cubs. We saw walruses in the water, hauled out on beaches. We saw whales. We saw beluga, fin, minke. And one about midnight, and because we're in the land of the midnight sun, where it's 24 hours of daylight, a blue whale came and swam around the ship for about half an hour, as if nothing had ever happened. We weren't there. It was actually quite inquisitive. It was definitely checking us out. A blue whale is the largest creature, the largest animal that has ever existed on the planet. And it swam, it is blue, by the way, it swam around the ship and then it went into this deep, deep dive. We saw reindeer, we saw masses of wildflowers and, you know, skies filled with these extraordinary birds. So just, it it sounds sort of trite to talk about life-changing and perspective-altering, but the Antarctic and the Arctic, I believe, are two places on the planet that can make you rethink your own values on life and your position in life and and us as human beings and to make us think about what are we doing to this planet you know um and i mentioned sylvia earl google dr sylvia earl she 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 she's on but she's the david attenborough of oceans and to 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 hear her or read her comments about uh, uh, about our dependence as the human race on the ocean. And, you know, we call it planet Earth, but 70% of the planet is 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 water and surrounded by water. It should be called planet ocean. And if we don't start really to focus on what's happening in our oceans around us, particularly in the polar regions, I don't know. I think things are not going to be particularly good for future generations. I, I don't want to sound sort of dour about it, but, um, you know, certainly in, I think the, Arc- the Antarctic is in better shape than the Arctic. The Arctic, we felt, and the expedition team was talking about how it's changed. They see it year on year on year, and they've said that the Arctic is changing rapidly and not, not, not for the better. Um, mm. So, you know, great food for thought. They, these expedition voyages to the polar regions are three things. They're about education, they are about conservation, and they're about sustainability. And they're three big subjects, but when you're working and, 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 and living every day with these incredible scientific experts and uh, with the expedition team who are crack people in their in their in their chosen fields it, it, it is enlightening mm. with human very very human perspectives so this is not a cruise this is about discovering 
the, the, the sort of central tenets of what of what this planet is all about and our place in it. I can't mm-hmm. stress that too highly. Absolutely. Gosh, that was um, really insightful uh, and um, and really great to hear from someone who's who's been to both in such a close proximity time and also recently. Um, so thank you so much for that. We're gonna we'll have a slight change of pace now because uh, we end all of our interviews on this question. <laughs> What's the most bizarre thing that's ever happened to you on your travels? You're gonna hate me because I'm gonna stay in Antarctica. <laughs> I thought you might. I'll get it out of my head. I went polar snorkeling. There is such a thing. It exists. You join a program and every day you can go out, you don a kind of spaceship sort of dry suit, not a wetsuit, it's a dry suit. So you're dry inside, completely insulated, and you go polar snorkeling with your guide in a group. And we snorkeled around icebergs and we snorkeled in bays that were with had elephant seals and leopard seals and we snorkeled in bays in cooper bay which is on south georgia we we the zodiac took us into a rock pool that was filled with baby fur seals and we polar snorkeled with baby fur seals crawling all the most inquisitive animals and they were crawling all over us and that I felt was one of the most wonderful moments of my life. Um, definitely. Uh, it's a tough thing to do, the polar snorkeling. It comes with challenges. It will definitely push you out of your comfort zone, but it takes you to places that uh, are unimaginable and unseeable potentially from a Zodiac or on shore. So if you've got the nerve to do it, I would recommend polar snorkeling for sure. <laughs> That's fantastic. Look, thank you so much for your time today, um, Andrew, and um, it would be great to, to we'll have a chat again, um, you know, maybe in months to come and see and see where you've travelled to next. I would love to. Thank you for the uh, opportunity. That was fascinating, and Andrew's right. People don't support a cause that they don't understand, although part of me thinks that travel to the Arctic and Antarctic need to be curtailed simply for the preservation of, of those, you know, incredible locations. It's it's a really difficult balance between tourism and conservation, but it's one that we have to keep talking about. Our tip this week is about the safest places to travel, according to US multinational Berkshire Hathaway Travel Protection. So the research is pretty extensive and actually breaks it down into exactly why they're the safest places and also safest places from certain angles, such as terrorist or safety for LGBTQ travellers. So we're obviously not going to go extensively into it, but we'll, we'll give you um, a very good summary and then, um, yeah, we'll put the link in the show notes. Yeah, so um, we'll get to the full list soon, but it says that it's clear that travellers think that Canada... Northern Europe, Australia and New Zealand are pretty safe. Interesting, given that we are often portrayed as not so safe due to the sharks, the spakes, the spiders. I mean, yeah. I love how people always often say to me too, 
oh, you're from New Zealand. There's nothing deadly in New Zealand. Um, and I'm like, yep, as a child, we free ran through long grass in the height of summer. Um, <laughs> not that summers were the same as they are in Australia, but there you go. Um, and also, you know, what about Canadian bears? Why, why aren't people concerned about Canadian bears, but they're worried about sharks and snakes and deadly spiders in Australia? I mean, would you go walking in the woods alone in Canada? <laughs> well, I, I don't know, but regardless, Canada was voted the number one safest place in the world, followed by Switzerland, Norway, Ireland, and then the Netherlands. And next was the UK, Portugal, Denmark, and Iceland, and in 10th place, Australia, followed by New Zealand. And Australia actually dropped from number four last year. And guess what it said was the explanation of why. Oh, go on, tell me. <laughs> what made us more uh, more scary? Jellyfish. <laughs> Jellyfish, crocodiles. This is what it says in the report. Jellyfish, crocodiles, sharks, poisonous insects and snakes. And it says, and I quote, the continent and its waters host wildlife that merit awe and respect in equal measures. I think travellers simply need to toughen up a bit. I mean... For New Zealand, it says to watch out for tricky plants. <laughs> <laughs> I think dangerous. Like, seriously, do you have dangerous sheep in New Zealand, Kirsty? Look, I've been chased by cows before. <laughs> when I've been walking on, you, you know. Tell me you've been chased, <laughs> chased by a sheep. But definitely not a sheep. So I've never been chased by a sheep. Um, and when I lived in Auckland, there's a working farm called One Tree Hill, which is beautiful, actually. It's a beautiful walk. There's a... Um, uh, it's a it's a working farm, as I said, as well, and it's a beautiful park. Um, and I used to walk the dog or run the dog through there, and I was chased by um, cows multiple times. <laughs> I think maybe it's a weather a weather thing because it says to pack for all seasons. And interestingly, mature survey respondents rated Iceland and South Korea as their top destinations, um, which I found yeah I found really curious. Mature travellers were the only major group to list South Korea amongst their 10 safest countries, but they think South Korea is really safe and, look, it is scrupulously honest and it doesn't have many things that will bite you. Um, does a you know, a couple of dodgy mushrooms kicking around. So, so to me, that was a bit random, wasn't it? Meanwhile, parents responding to the survey voted um, for Canada and Belgium as the most safe destinations for families. And for LGBTQ travellers, the top destinations are Belgium, again, Ireland and China, which is, uh, that last one's a weird one, especially when you consider, um, you know, places like San Francisco and Sydney. I know that they're not countries, but, you know, they are renowned for their um, for their inclusive culture. Yeah, I agree. I find, found that one a little odd too. China was very kind of strange anyway. Yeah, I did find that strange as well. While it seems that the world's safest countries don't and shouldn't really change, that's what it says, I'm not really entirely sure why, there's actually been significant movement in this year's rankings. For instance, over the last year, Japan rebounded from 19th to 12th place, while Denmark fell from 2nd to 8th place. Having just come back from Denmark, I felt incredibly safe, but anyway. Brazil made the biggest... But it's kind of weird. Can I, I mean, come on, they just got an Australian queen, so we're going to be safe there. <laughs> like, <laughs> Mary, right? Like, gonna look She's going to look after us. Mary will save us. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Oh, there's so much I could talk to you about there. I went to one of the... Um, the Anyway, I went somewhere. I went, went into their official, um, you know, palace. It was incredible. It's so beautiful. Right. Let's move on, though. Brazil made the biggest leap, jumping from 42nd safest country up to 15th place. 
with high marks for women travellers as well as people of colour and the LGBTQ community. Oh, well, there we go. So there's the safety space. I mean, of course it's going to change because geopolitical structure of the world changes, you know. A war breaks out somewhere. I mean, you know, um, Ukraine has been off limits and, and around, you know, the perimeter of Russia and places like that changed dramatically. And oh, I agree. But... However, I'm still laughing about the sheep. Dangerous New Zealand. <laughs> so um if you if you do want to check your own safety, we'll put the list in the show notes for you. Next week, I'm talking to Adventure World Managing Director Neil Rogers about the demand for ethical travel, what type of experiences this actually includes, and how you can do it. And you'll want to listen to the end because if you listen through to his most bizarre travel moment, there's a celebrity that he's often mistaken for. <laughs> I think, you know what? I Googled it. I'm not going to give it away, but I Googled it. But <laughs> I cannot, I cannot unsee now. It's incredible. <laughs> And if you would like to help support our production costs, you can buy us a coffee at coffee.com, which is ko-fi.com forward slash the world awaits. And for like a mere $5, we can continue to bring you inspirational travel interviews with the world's best. I mean, Kirsty doesn't even drink coffee, but she <laughs> do much do. <laughs> She'll do anything for a chai latte. And mine's a skinny flat white, thanks, because <laughs> Melbourne. That's a wrap for The World Awaits this week. Click to subscribe anywhere you listen to your favourite pods. And where can people find you, Kirsty? I'm at Kirsty Wrights on Instagram. That's K-I-R-S-T-I-E Wrights, W-R-I-T-E-S. And where can people find you, Belle? You can find me at globalsalsa.com or on Insta at global underscore salsa. Thanks for listening. See you next week.